Today we're looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. I would like to read that for you here before we begin. And so just follow along as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's servant, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray here. Father, I thank you for the celebration of your grace in the music. I thank you that your grace has abounded so lavishly to not only save us, but to unite us into a church, to cause us to to be one with you. God, I pray this morning as we unfold this text that it would just open our eyes to the importance of the church, the importance of leadership, the impact that the gospel makes in the world and and how you have designed the church to have that impact. God, may our hearts and our minds be open now to hear what your word says. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Jordan gave the update on Canada, and of course, as you know, while the Canada team was gone, we were, a group of us was in the Czech Republic, involved in ministry there, and, uh, and when we arrived in Czech, um, there were these signs uh, on, this, on the streets as we were traveling through from the airport going to our first hotel, uh, there were these signs that said, uh, 600th Anniversary. Um, I was kind of guessing the word anniversary there because I couldn't read Czech, but, but it was 600th and you figured it was 600th anniversary of something. And so as we were getting there, I saw pictures of a, of a face of somebody who I thought I recognized from history. And, and so when we got there, I found out it was truly the 600th anniversary of Jan Hus. We call him John Hus. That's kind of the English derivative of his name, John Hus, but the, his actual name is Jan Hus. And Jan Hus is an early reformer. Those of you who appreciate church history, know the role that, that we call him John Hus, but I, for the sake of the audio and people in Czech listening, will call him Jan Hus, the role that Jan Hus has played in, uh, in history. Jan Hus lived in the 1400s. He was a priest in Prague, and, uh, and he stood opposed to a lot of the religious heresy of the day, stood up for the preaching of the Word of God, uh, stood up against the uh, authority that was coming from the re- religious institution that was kind of bearing down on, on the people, and, and he stood firm for the truth. What's interesting is that he stood so firm that eventually he was executed for his faith. But, what, but when he was killed, the things that he believed didn't die out with him. It didn't die out with him. He had a f- group of followers, and they took on the name Hussites. And they developed a little community in this little town called Tabor. Tabor is in the Czech Republic, just south of Prague. And, uh, and this band of believers gathered up this, in this community, and they decided that they were going to live according to the Scriptures. 
And so they used the Bible as a means through which they were going to set up their community, handle all their business, all their trade. And it was this town on top of a hill, and they had a wall around them, and they were kind of there, right there in the 1400s, living this way. Now, what had happened, though, was that that little band of believers ended up uh, starting a whole revolution in that area of Bohemia. So much so that they ended up, by default, overthrowing the government not in some kind of major rebellion, but the people started getting attracted to the Hussites and, and the way that they lived. And suddenly the people started saying, we don't want to live under this bondage anymore. We want to live the way these people are living. And, and the Hussites ended up creating this major revolution in, in the country, so much so that it has been kind of the, the banner moment in the history of the Czech Republic. The motto, the Czech the Czech uh, symbol, or the, you know, their, 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 their symbol, they have a motto. And the motto of the Czech Republic is truth prevails. Interesting motto. They actually got that from Jan Hus. He made this statement. He said, seek the truth, hear the truth, learn the truth, love the truth, speak the truth, hold to the truth, and defend the truth until death, because truth prevails. That was his statement. Now, when he was talking about truth, that wasn't some abstract thought. He was talking about the truth of the Word of God. And he was saying, hold on to this because it prevails. Now, I was thinking about this. You got one guy, one priest in Prague who's teaching the Word of God and a group of people that are hearing the Word of God and following that Word. And and when all of this started... It wasn't like Jan Hus was thinking to himself, well, I'm going to start a movement that's going to change the country, and 600 years from now, they're going to take my, my, my sayings and they're going to stick it on their, their, their flag. No, he just was saying, I'm just going to preach the Bible. I'm preaching the Word of God. Lives are changing. He doesn't know what God is going to do with this. And what God did with it is he absolutely changed the country so that even now, as... The Czech Republic is considered one of the most secular countries in the world. The dominant belief system is atheism. They will celebrate the 600th anniversary of a preacher. And they will put on their their, their flag and on their, their logo, truth prevails. Now, I was thinking about this. Because we live in a world where there's a lot to complain about, Right? We live in a world where there's lots of court decisions that go on and things that happen, and we sit there and say, how can they do this? How can this happen? Why does this happen? Why is there this community falling apart? Why is there crime? Why, is, why are people being shot in the streets? Why are we having all of this, right? All these why questions come up, and of course they come up more during political seasons as we're entering. And you say, what can the church do about it? What can we do about it? And I have an answer for us. We can be the church. We can be the church. When the church does what God designed it to be, it is salt and it is light. It does make a difference in the world. When the church tries to redesign itself away from what God designed it to be, it ceases to be the church, and then we have to use politics and arguing and talk radio and everything else to try to change the world which doesn't help. Jan Hus shows us 
that one guy and one group of followers, when, when they decide to be the church, make a huge difference for generations. For generations. Titus is a wonderful book because it teaches us how to be the church. It teaches us what it means to be the church. And because and, and, the point of this book is that Titus was left there by Paul to put this church in order, to set it up so that it would be the church. And then when it is the church, and it's operating as the church, it becomes salt and light. It establishes a counter community, and it shows the world how we use money, and it shows the world how we view marriage, shows the world how we view children, it shows the world how we view intimacy and relationships and things like that. And suddenly it's a counter community, and that counter community has the very power of God behind it. And that counter community, empowered by the very power of God, makes an impact. And throughout history, when people decided to be the church the way God designed it, the ripple effect has gone on for generations. So we're going to see what it means to be the church. The very first thing that we're going to study here today, at least we'll start this, and Lord willing, next week we'll complete it, is the leadership of the church. The church is going to be the church. It has to be run and established and shepherded and guided by the right kind of leaders. So we're going to see this today. We're going to study the leadership of the church. We're going to, we'll begin by just briefly looking at the mission of Titus here that, that Paul uh, left Titus on. But then we're going to look at elders and what does it mean to be elders and why are these elders this way. And, and as we look at this, I want you to look at this list through this lens. I want you to look at it through the lens of the fact that God designed the church to make an impact in the world. God designed the church to actually be salt and light, to actually have an impact. And, and that, that, that if you start getting overwhelmed, if you spend your day driving around listening to talk radio and you hear all the stuff that's going on, and you're sitting there going, oh my word, this is going wrong and this is going wrong and this law is getting passed and this treaty is getting signed, oh, and you start getting freaking out over it all and, you, and you, your blood pressure starts to rise, you say, what do we do? I want this thought to pop into your brain at that moment. Let's be the church. That's a good spot for an amen, you know? Come on, I'm getting fired up up here. You guys are like, uh, come on, that's a good spot, right? Right, you're getting all fired up, then let's be the church. Amen. All right, there we go. That's all I'll ask of you. You can go back to sleep now. No, Because it's exciting to think about the impact that a few hundred people could have right here. If a few hundred people in Tabor, Czech Republic, can change a nation, what can a few hundred people do here when they decide to be the church? So let's look at it here. First, we'll begin by looking at the mission. The mission here. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Paul, on his way to Rome, stopped in Crete. People got saved. He formed them into a loose gathering, actually a bunch of loose gatherings as we're going to see in a minute here. There were, there were several communities of believers and, uh, and, and they were loosely gathered, but they, they weren't structured yet. And so Paul has his, his man Titus and he says, listen, I want you to stay there and I want you to put the church in order. In fact, there's two things they're supposed to do. Put in order what remains and appoint elders in every town as, I, as directed. So these two things, put in order what remains and appoint 
in, in every town elders. Now, to put in order what remains, what it basically means is this. It means putting something in place so that it functions correctly. The simple way to understand that little phrase is to think about when you drop your car off at the garage to get it fixed. Right? Your car's broken down. Your goal is to drop it off so that you can pick it up so that it runs. Right? Now, you probably have had this experience, or I've had it, where I drop it off, and then as I'm driving it back, it seems worse. Ever have that? You go, wait a minute, there's a whole new sound here. You check it back. Well, I don't know what happened. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but wait a minute, there's just one thing was wrong, and now there's seven things wrong with it. So you get those seven things fixed, right? And then come back, and then ten more are broken afterwards, right? You know, that's, and that inside you're like, no, that's, my point is I want it given to you so that when I get it back, it runs. You are to set in order what remains, okay? Follow the Bible. Fix this thing so it works, okay? That's what set in order means. It means put this thing together so that it would function the way God designed it to function. reason why I'm making a big point of that is that as you read through this list, and we get into like, or read through this book, and you get into chapter two, start reading about older men, younger men, older women, younger women, these kind of things. You could look at this and just say, yeah, 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 whatever, okay, he's just offering suggestions. No, these, all of these descriptions are important to God. Everything in the book of Titus is, is saying, this are the, the key things you need in order so the church would function the way God designed it to function. So when we're studying this book, we're learning how do we become the salt and light God designed us to be. It's when you have these right kind of leaders, and then everybody from the old men to the young men to the older women to the young, younger women are all operating the way God designed them to operate. And then when everything is functioning that way, the church now is operating in the way it's designed to operate, and then that's when the impact happens. If you blow past Titus, you blow past this teaching, and you say, whatever, yeah, that's great. You know, we studied that two years ago. We don't need to do it again. You blow past it, then you're not operating the way God designed you to operate, and then you're left with no impact or minimal, marginal impact. Okay, so that's what we're seeing here. So this is his mission. Now, the key part to this mission, as we'll see, is the establishment of elders. So let's look here at that. That's our second point now. Let's look at the establishment of elders. Okay, so the church has to be cared for. Now, when you think of the word elders, I don't want you to think, insert the word just necessarily leaders. I want you to think of the word shepherds. You have to understand that before we get into this whole description of what an elder is. In fact, there are terms that are used here. Uh, you have the word overseer, you have the word steward, and the whole idea there is, is, is like an overseer is somebody who's been entrusted with something that they have to care for. I think of the word overseer, I think of like a babysitter, you know, somebody's coming to watch your children. Hey man, you're an overseer, I'm asking you to care for my children here. They're not yours, but you need to care for them. That's the picture here. And so the idea is, is that, that this description is describing the kind of person who would steward, shepherd, care for, love the people. Because God is designing the church to be salt and light. That's your role. Our collective role is to make an impact in the world. And so now what God is doing is He's going to put people in place who have a role to help you in this. And those are the elders. Now, 
uh, I was a, a few years ago, maybe, well, not a few years ago, like a couple decades ago, uh, I remember get, hearing a, a lesson about elders. And, and I've discovered that throughout the years, people have taken these qualifications and they've grouped them into three different major traits. And I like this grouping, so I'm going to use it today. Okay, I didn't come up with this, but, but, but people have been using this, and I think it's helpful to understand this. They say when you look at this whole list of things here about elders, you see that the elder basically has, has three things, three general categories. They're, they're men of conviction, they're men of character, and they're men of competency. And you see all three of those things in the text. Character, or conviction, character, and competency. And I'm going to use that as kind of a heading to just unpack some of these verses. Because when the work of appointing elders has to be done, you're looking for people who are men of conviction, men of character, men of competency. And so let's look at these. I'm going to deal with the conviction one first, which bops us down to verse 9, the last verse. And I want to start here for a reason. But let's look at verse 9 together. Notice what it says. This elder must be a man of conviction. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Now, the first thing it's saying is that this guy has to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, those are, you know, maybe an awkward sentence. Here's what he's saying. He has to so believe the word of God that it's the operating system through which he thinks about everything. That's what it means to hold fast. It it means that that the go-to place of his mind is the Scriptures. The go-to place is the teaching of the Word of God so that that so influences the way that he thinks that that that, 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 that it governs every decision he makes. He's got to know this, believe it, I have met many people. In fact, I, I knew a guy who, he was like 45 years old. He was diagnosed with lung cancer. He, this lung cancer came from years of rough living. A lot of smoking, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. You know, just exposed his body to a whole bunch of stuff. And at the age of 45, he gets cancer. He starts to get scared. Oh my, I'm going to die. I better make things right with God. So he starts calling churches. And he says, hey, do you have any leadership positions open? Right? He's calling churches. Finds a church that says, yes, actually, we have a deacon position open. Great. Can I apply for it? Absolutely. Becomes a deacon in this church. He's trying to get the boxes clicked off before he dies. That's not leadership. It's not conviction. That's just terror and fear and trying to work his way into heaven. I'm going to help. And I can't imagine that that's the only time that's ever happened in the world. And there are many churches that would say, yeah, come, hey, we could use a guy like you. You know, you're a successful businessman. You've, you've got money, and he did. He had a lot of money, and he was successful, and he could come in and bring his contacts. And, and they ended up building under his, before he died, they ended up building this wing, and they dedicated to him, and he's got his names over the door to this day because he donated money. And all the while, he's thinking, going to heaven with this, Right? It's Paul saying, no, we don't do that. These guys have to be so committed to the Word of God that they would hold to it. 
Because they have two tasks, and we're going to unpack these later. They have two tasks they're doing with this word. First is they're going to instruct people, and we'll talk about what that means in a little bit. They're going to instruct people. But second, they're going to confront people. They've got to do both with the word. But you can't instruct and you can't teach out of what you don't believe, and you can't confront if you don't understand it. You can't do either one of those. And you'll never do them well enough because even on the confronting part, if you haven't been confronted by the Word of God and experienced the grace and the mercy of Pete, of God as you are growing, and you'll, you'll never extend that mercy and grace to others, man. You'll just come at them with anger. and You're not right. right? You won't be a shepherd. And so he's saying, listen, first thing is these guys got to be men of conviction. Do they hold to the truth? Will they teach it? And will they have the courage to use it to confront others. Now, second thing. So there's the conviction. Second thing. Elders are men of character. Okay, now we'll bump back up to verse 6 here. Elders are men of character. And I want to remind you that an elder is a shepherd. Right? This is the role. He's a shepherd. And so the evaluation of the character of a man is all about his ability to shepherd people. Right? The elder isn't the smartest guy in the room. It isn't the person who, who can quote the, the most Scripture. It's the person who has the proven character of a shepherd. That's what it is. The proven character of a shepherd. Notice, verse. let me start reading in verse 6 and read verse, verses 6 through 8 here. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Okay, two times you notice in the passage there, it says that an elder is to be above reproach. That's the first thing we have to point out there. Right? In verse 6 and in verse 7, he must be above reproach. Let me explain to you what above reproach means. I like to use this phrase. I used to say, I like to say that elders are Teflon man, right? If they were a superhero, that's what they'd be, Teflon man. And what that means is this, right? Teflon, nothing sticks to it. Everything just slides off Teflon. And the idea is this. It isn't that an accusation isn't going to come against an elder. It's just whether or not the accusation comes or just slide off, right? Meaning this. Somebody comes and says, man, that guy has done this, he's this, and he's this. Does everybody go, oh, yeah, I could totally see that, <laughs> Okay, then he's not above reproach. If the accusation comes and says, you know, he did this, he said this, he said this, and if people went, I don't know. Maybe you caught him on a bad day. Maybe you misunderstood. I just can't see him doing that. That's above reproach. Above reproach means the accusation can't stick. Doesn't mean it won't come because accusations come. People get mad all the time and they throw off all kinds of accusations against the shepherds of the church. The question is, does he live a life that is so ungodly and undisciplined that everybody goes, oh yeah, I could totally see that. I could totally see that. Okay, because what he's saying is not, he's got to be above reproach because the accusations will come. Because when people get confronted, they don't like it and they throw you know, arguments back at the church, you can't have leaders that are walking along where people go, yeah, I totally, yeah, I could see it. In fact, it surprised me that it was, that only happened. I would actually think it would have been worse, right? You know, you can't have that. You have to have, 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 have shepherds that are above reproach. Now, the way that he unpacks this above reproach is he starts to say, okay, now listen, we're going to talk about his home, 
We're going to talk about his personal character. And so now that he talks about being above reproach, he's now saying, okay, now let's look at what his home life will look like first. So that's this first area, his home life. Notice what he says. The husband of one wife. Literally, if you were going to translate that, it would mean a one-woman man. Now, it's somewhat of a vague statement, but if we were to, because it's like, what does that actually mean? Is it talking about divorce, not divorce? I think it's talking about his character. And what it's saying is this, when you see this guy, does he strike you to be totally devoted to his wife? So much so that everyone would, would never question his love. Never question his loyalty. Never question his character. Never think that he's five steps out the door. See, the kind of guy that flirts with other women. Right? If you've got pictures of him in the, in the, in the, in the you know, church picnics, is he the one always hanging out with the girls? You know? And then you look at the church photo album, like, wow, this guy's always hanging with the girls. The guys are all over there playing volleyball or something. He's just sitting with the girls, eating cake. You know? is, he, is he showing such a way that he's like hanging there and... And you're questioning, why are you there at that moment? Comes across flirtatious. Comes across wanting to hug him, and, t- and the girls are like, man, that guy kind of creeps me out a little bit. A little awkward, a little weird, right? There's a lot of girls shaking their head right now. <laughs> oh, I know that guy, right? <laughs> right? See, that's what it's really talking about. In the truest heart, does he show himself to be totally devoted to his wife. You would know it. You would know it. You watch him. You see him holding hands and putting his arm around her. He's just devoted. And there'd be no question that this guy loves his wife. He's telling Titus, man, when you look at this guy, you have to make sure, first and foremost, that he is devoted to his wife. Why? Because an elder isn't a leader in the sense of a board of directors. He's a shepherd. And shepherds love. Shepherds care for people. Shepherds are devoted to people. And if this guy can't be devoted to his wife, then he's proven that he's unfit to care for the flock. The husband of one wife. Now we move into the next one. That his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Now this statement kind of throws people off a little bit. Because it's like, what does that mean? Are you actually saying that the children have to be Christians? Well, the word believe. let me kind of explain it to you because there's a little confusion about that word. The word believers, actually, in the Greek, is just the word faith. I don't know if you knew that or not, but when you see the word believers, it's usually the word faith or faithful. Some of you might have a little footnote in your Bible where you might have or faithful, or faithful, because it's actually the word faithful. Now, the reason why the Bible translates the word faith or faithful as believers is because the evidence of our belief is faith. And so sometimes the translators like to use that word to be theologically accurate. It's faithful. We're believers. Now the question is this. Is Paul telling us his children have to be faithful or believers to God? Like they have to be saved? Or to something else? Well, if you look at the context, I think you see that it's not necessarily suggesting... And you have to guarantee that this child has faith in Christ. But actually, he's got to, he or she, the child, has to be faithful to the dad. Notice the phrase. His children are faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. 
not open to the charge of riotous living and rebellion. Now here's the implication. We're looking for somebody and how he shepherds his home. Is he such a good shepherd that his children would say, we'll obey you, Dad. Now it's not suggesting that children are perfect. Okay, it's not suggesting that. Okay, so every, you know, my children are going, oh, thank you, right? It's not suggesting that. What it's suggesting, though, is that the dad is so respected in the home that if the dad says, hey, you're not going, you're not going to that movie. Now, the kid may or may not go, right? You might get that. But the kid isn't sneaking out the bedroom window, stealing a car, and going to the movie. You might be dealing with the attitude at home. You're going to be dealing with shepherding because all of us are sinners. The dad's a sinner. Mom's a sinner. Kids are sinners. We're all sinners. But the question is, is the shepherding heart of the father so respected that the children, even if they're rolling their eyes, are staying home rather than accused of sneaking out? Because what he's saying is, listen, this guy, you're asking this guy to shepherd the body. And if his own family don't respect him, his own children won't respect him enough to obey the boundaries that he's put in the home. Then why in the world would the church do it? Okay, now we'll unpack that more later. But what he's saying is, you see, if you look through the lens of a shepherd, this is the heart of it. Is this guy a shepherd? Is he devoted to his wife and loving his children enough to where even if they disagree with him, they still submit? They still honor? They still care? Or are they pushing against the dad so much that even if they say no, they say, well, I don't care about my dad and I'm going to sneak out of the house anyways. Go steal the car, grab the keys, grab some money out of mom's purse and go to the movie. And if that's the pattern of the child, then Paul's saying, don't put that guy in it. His shepherding skills are lacking. His shepherding skills are lacking. He didn't deal with the root sin when the, when the sin was in its root form in the home, which means he doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't understand how to deal with it. Okay, so there's his home life. Now he's going to get to his personal life. He has a list of things he shouldn't be and a list of things he should be. Or a list of things he shouldn't do and a list of things he should do. Okay, very simple. We'll kind of click off this list here. Notice what he says. He says he must not be arrogant. It's pretty simple to understand arrogance, but if I were just to give you a, a simple definition... Uh, an arrogant person is the person who walks into a room and they need to turn everything back to themselves, right? So you're sitting there having a conversation with somebody and they're, they're talking and that person walks in and dominates the conversation. Hey, I overheard you talking here. Here's what I was thinking. Blah, 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 blah. Right? It's just arrogance. It's just me, 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 me. I need to be heard. Turning it to me all the time. Can't walk in and do what's needed. Can't serve where the needs are. They serve based on where they want to serve. These are the guys that walk in the church and they say, this is what I'm gifted to do, and this is what I want to do. And I say, well, we don't have a need for that. We have our need's over here. No, I don't do that. Okay, that's arrogant. It's arrogant. You can't serve. You can only do what you want. Okay, next one, quick-tempered. Obvious one. You could see that, right? That's that person who flares up right away. The emotions of the room are going, man, and they're feeding it. Woo! You know, right? Everybody's yelling. He's going to yell louder. Doesn't have the ability to disengage. Flies off the handle quickly. Right? These aren't that hard to figure out, right? How about a drunkard? You could figure that one out, right? Why is drunkenness frowned upon? 
you, if you study drunkenness in the Bible, you will discover that the reason why God hates drunkenness, and I think you could put any kind of addiction in there, is that we're to be under the control of the Spirit. And when you submit your body to something else, you're putting your body under the control of another influence. And, and you don't want that, right? Picture what kind of decisions would come out of an elders meeting if they were all drunk. You know, <laughs> It's just not good. Would not be good. Some of you are actually thinking about that right now, aren't you? <laughs> See some laughter going on. Yeah, wouldn't be good. Okay, the next one, violent. Now, let me give you another word for violent because you might think, well, of course I'm not going to get somebody who punches people, and that's true. But violent also can be d- interpreted as a bully. These are people who use power and power moves. They come aggressively in a powerful way to try to force you into submission. You don't want that. You don't want greedy for gain. Obviously, someone who loves money so much that they're, they live for that, right? That, that their passion and the drive of their life is their own finances, right? So there's the list of what he's not to be. Pretty, pretty good list there. Now let's look at the list of what he is to be. The first one is hospitable. Hospitable means a lover of strangers, you know, if you show up to a leadership meeting, you show up to one of our, our meetings, elder and deacon meeting, one of the things that a common conversation we might have is about how our church is perceived by people who have walked in here for the first time. And we might say, you know, we should really do this, or we should have this, or we should do this, and because, you know, somebody might walk in and we want them to feel comfortable here. And sometimes we might make a decision, somebody say, why are you always so worried about the people who, who, who aren't, you know, part of our church? We say, because that's actually one of the qualifications of an elder. You've got to love the stranger. Because it's the very heart of the gospel. God goes to the furthest reaches of the world, to the person who's never heard of him, who's never thought of him, and says, I love you, and I'm bringing you into my family. Everyone has a seat at my table. That's the gospel, right? And if you're going to be a shepherd, you've got to model that by saying, listen, we want, if the stranger walks in, we want to treat him like family. Number one trait given of his character, that he's a lover of strangers. First thing in the list of positives, because it's the very heart of the gospel. You cannot have a shepherd that rolls his eyes at the stranger. The stranger walks in, and maybe they come from a worldview that is, you know, messed up. And they walk in messed up, and you don't want that leader going, oh, oh, boy, put some more people in the nursery, quick, hide, you know. Can't have that. First trait, lover strangers. You got a seat at the table here. I don't care. We, I know we don't know you, but you're family because you've walked in the door, right? First trait. Second trait, lover of good. Pretty obvious, I think, you can understand what that means. He takes joy in the things that are noble. Our world loves humor that is destructive, the kind of Monty Python kind of humor of the world, you know? And we like that. And he's saying, you know, really as an operating system, well, that probably showed my age. Half the people are going, what in the world is that? Don't Google it, kids. Don't. Okay? <laughs> but, but, but the idea is saying, it, as an operating system, as a way of life, does his joy be found in the noble things, in the things that are right and good? Self-controlled, it means that his emotions don't own him. If something makes him angry, he doesn't give in to the anger. 
Something makes him sad, he doesn't give in to the sorrow. He's not contr- he, he, there's an element of a, of a control so that even when things are getting bad and somebody's, you know, shooting the arrows at him, saying, you did this wrong and you did this wrong, you did this wrong. He's not going, oh, yeah, well, you know, what about me? And blah, 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 right? He's, I can take it. I'll take it. I'll go in the other room and cry like a baby after you leave, right? Right? That kind of a thing. Self-control. Got to be upright. It means honest, just. He'll do the right thing even if no one is around. That's what upright means. You'll do the right thing even if no one is around. Holy means set apart. In this context, it means set apart for the mission. He lives for the kingdom of God. He's not living for himself and adding the kingdom of God later. No, he's defined by that. And disciplined. The word discipline basically means this. Means I like to say it this way. He's ruled by the wisdom of God. Ruled by the wisdom. Disciplined person is somebody who applies God's wisdom to the decisions that they make. They don't use human fleshly wisdom and therefore their life is ruined because they just don't have the discipline to make the right decisions. Okay, so there it is. There's the character of a man. He's a shepherd at home. And then his internal character is one of control, of love, of self-control, these kind of things. There's his character. Okay, so we see a man of conviction, character. Finally, last thing, he's a man of competency. A man of competency. Um, There are three competencies we see in this text. Three of them. Three things he has to be able to do. So when you're evaluating an elder, you're evaluating somebody in that process, you're only looking for three basic core competencies. First one, he's got to manage his home. Again, look at verse 6. If anyone's above approach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. Again, the idea of the husband of one wife, he's devoted to his wife and he's shepherding his children. He's caring for them. It's a competency. It's such a competency that Paul even made this statement in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he's talking about an elder. Listen to this, 1 Timothy 2, verses 4 and 5. He said he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. See, there's the idea. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You know, it's amazing, and this is true of children, how the children treat uh, their, their, their dad especially is, it shows you how the dad has invested into the children. It's just that clear. And, and, and if he's invested with love and care and tenderness and he's proven to be a shepherd, not perfect, doesn't do everything right. I might have made a mistake here or there occasionally, once a year or so, right? No. right? It happens, right? You're not perfect. But if the overall heart is to be a shepherd, then the kids respond back to the love of the father. They respond back to that. And so, so when Paul's saying we're looking at a guy, we're looking at his home, and we're saying, are the kids responding back? It's not saying the kids are going to be perfect. This isn't about the children. You have to understand that. This isn't a burden for the kids. This isn't you know, a sermon for me to tell my kids, shape up or I lose my job. That's not the sermon. The sermon is about me. It's not about them. It's not about any of the kids in the room. It's about the guy. You look at his home. Not looking for perfect children, 
but we're looking for children who haven't turned their face away from their children or their father and have absorbed the, 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 uh, the ethics of the world. They've turned their face from their father and they say, we're going to let the world father us. Then he's not ready for this role. He's not ready for it. Why? Because how could he help you? How could he shepherd the church? If you think about it this way, one of the unique elements of the church is that we are to be salt and light. That's a hard thing. You know, if I told you that we're now going to create a reality TV show here, and there are going to be cameras in your home, and it's going to be KBC, it's going to be on the Discovery Channel, and uh, you guys will be followed 24 hours a day with cameras everywhere, because this is the best way to be salt and light. And so uh, the world gets a chance to see how you guys operate in your home, and the world gets to see what you do with your children, and what television shows you're watching at night, and what you're doing on the internet. The world's going to watch it all. Um, I don't hear any amens, right? That's an overwhelming thought, isn't it? If you had cameras in your home, but yet God is saying, listen, I kind of want you to have that kind of impact. I really do. So what do you need with that kind of impact? You're going to need somebody to come alongside and help you, shepherd you, care for you, help you deal with the issues in your home, help you deal with the issues at work, help you process through your life. You need shepherds. And so God's got to raise up people who have a track record of being shepherds in their own home so they can help you in your home. So that one day you actually could say, I feel confident putting the camera here. I feel confident doing that. We're not going to be perfect but we're going to walk humbly before God. You see, if you're going to have that kind of shepherd, then he's got to prove it in his home. Okay? He can't ignore his home. He has to be involved. First competency. Second competency. He's got to be capable of teaching. Look at verse 9. Again, we're back to the he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so you see the element, instruction. Capable of teaching means this. When He uses the word instruction in there because the word instruction actually means this. It means actually explaining something to you so that it works for you. Right? You ever have this? This happens to me all the time. I buy something and I have to put it together and I get the instruction manual and I think, who wrote this? Who wrote this thing? I think somebody who never built this wrote this because it's pointless. It makes no sense to me. There is no slot A. I've looked everywhere for slot A. I can't find slot A. It frustrates you because when you see the word instructions, you're thinking that the instruction manual is actually for the device you have. (laughs) And most of the time it's not. The word instruction means this. We don't want this to be of our elders. We want the elders to be able to say, listen, when you come to me, I can actually help you work through this. Because you see, I've spent time in the Word, and I'm not perfect at it. But it's stewed, and it's matured in my life. And I get it, and I can open up the Word of God. And I can instruct you in sound doctrine. I can actually bring the truth to your life so that it works what instruction means. So instruction in sound doctrine is not lecturing in systematic theology. It's taking the systematic theology and helping you understand how that impacts the way you're going to raise your children, how that impacts the way you're going to love your wife or love your husband or go to work 
or deal with a bad boss or deal with a lawsuit or deal with whatever's coming your way. He has to be capable of doing this. But he needs to be able to do it with the truth, and that's why he says sound doctrine, pure doctrine. There's a lot of people who like to wrangle about words out there. Lots of people out there trying to predict the rapture and all these kind of things, and they they get all caught up with some little word and phrase, and, and they just want to argue with you some little minor point. And Paul would constantly tells his men, don't do that. Don't wrangle. It's gangrene for the church. It's destructive. You need to know the truth and be able to give sound instruction to people so that they would be salt and light. Why? Because God designed the church to have the type of impact that the Hussites had in the Czech Republic 600 years ago. He's designed, he's put within KBC everything we need to absolutely make a major difference in our community, in our culture, and in our world. But it begins by having elders who understand this. Why? Because when we bring sound instruction in sound doctrine, transformation happens. That's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? But there's a third competency, right? So the first is to manage his home. Second, he's got to be able to teach. He's got to give sound instruction. Third competency is our last thing here. He's got to refute those in error. Again, we're back in verse 9, the very part of it, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's lots of people with a lot of bad teaching. There's a lot of people who believe a lot of bad teaching. There's a lot of bad teaching you can be exposed to. And the idea is he's saying you need to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, when you hear the word rebuke, probably what comes to your mind is the way we use the word rebuke, which is like, I rebuke you. You know, finger has to be pointed for a proper rebuke. And it's got to have like this, you know, thorough, strong voice. If you've got a weak voice, you can't rebuke because rebuking is saying, I rebuke you. I'm coming to you to confront you on your sin, right? When you hear the word rebuke, that's what you think of rebuke, because that's how it's used often. The word rebuke actually doesn't mean that. It actually means to expose the weakness of a thought or an idea. To expose it thoroughly. So somebody comes to me and says, I think God is calling me to do such and such and such and such and such and such. And all the things that they say God's calling him to do is sinful. I don't want to go, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus! Because that's not rebuking. That's just using the word rebuke. Okay? But it's not rebuking. Rebuking is actually sitting down saying, hey, you presented five ideas there, and they're wrong. And I would like to tell you why. And I'd like to expose what will happen if you continue down that road. And I'd like for you to understand the danger of where you're headed. I've had many of those conversations where Somebody has said something to me on a Sunday. It's clicked in my brain, and I sent them an email, and I said, can we get together this week? I need to talk to you. And, I, and, and we go out somewhere to a restaurant, and I buy the, the tea, and I say, what you're thinking is wrong, and I need to show you why. And I need to show you where that's going to lead you if you continue down that road. And I'm going to show you the right path. And I'll put people in your life to help you walk down that right path. Now, sometimes people say, I don't want that. And they reject it and they walk away. Sometimes people say, thank you, and they accept it. But that's what rebuking is. It's the skill of shepherding somebody out of a bad doctrine. It's not yelling at them with a pointed finger. That's not a shepherd. 
That's using bullying tactics, and we've already been told that's wrong. A shepherd walks into a situation and says, boy, what they're thinking is harmful and hurtful. I need to show them. I need to show them. And I want to spend time helping them understand this so that they will walk on the right path because I love them and I want to see them get there. See, that's the competency. So when you're looking at an elder then, you're saying, okay, do they have the conviction? Right? Are they holding fast to truth? Do they have the character, their home life, their, their, their family life? And do they have the competency? Can they manage their homes? Are they able to teach? Do they understand what actually real rebuking means? When you look at that person and you say, okay, they do have that, then, then yeah, you want to appoint that person. Now, is any, does anybody do that perfectly? Only Jesus. Okay? So when you look at this, you're not saying that this person is going to do this 100%. The question is, it's just the direction, and, 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 and do they have a pattern of this? They might stumble, they might fall, but is there a pattern for this? And so that's what we're, we're, we look for. Those are the areas of, of, of leadership, and you can see why, when that's in place, how that helps the church be all that God designed it to be. So, what do we do with this? A couple of things I'd like to share with you, um, and then, uh, and then we'll, I'll give you a couple prayer things. But first of all, as you well know, we've talked about leaders, and we've had names come up to you in the past, and, and we've had people in this process, and, and then, of course, summer hits, and everybody starts traveling, and everything goes crazy, and stuff happens, and, and so uh, it, it starts to unfold. But, uh, but we do have, we mentioned to you Jeff Lewis a, a few months ago, early, maybe May, April, May, and, uh, and he's been in that process, and then, of course, the craziness hit, and I dropped the ball on a few things, and and, uh, but he's still in that process. And, uh, and as we're going through this together, you know, in a few weeks, we hope to you know, be, be up here once all the traveling is done and the, the craziness is, is done and people get back into town to be able to, to bring him up here and to uh, lay hands on him uh, as an elder. And, uh, and, and so now it's just a matter of getting scheduling done. But as you think about this process, too, um, I would ask you to pray for two things. Uh, for our church, if we're going to be a church that, that has a kind of impact that God wants the church to have, I'd ask you to pray for ourselves that God would raise up in our midst men of conviction and character and competency. And when you think about that prayer request, I'd like you to think about even the young guys in the church, the guys that maybe are 20 years away from this. But I'd like you to start praying specifically for people you know, specifically for people who, who have this, that God would stir their heart to say, I should be doing this. But also for people that, that, that people would become this and that, our next, that we'd have a next generation so that we would pass the baton to another generation of leaders that, and shepherds that would care for this church. And, and so think of names. Be very specific, but I would ask you to pray for that. And then the next thing I'd ask you to pray for is pray for the current team that we would stay men of conviction, character, and competency. Um, you, you know, the work of, of, of shepherding can be hard and tiresome and, and exhausting, and at times uh, guys burn out, and, 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 and sometimes it's the, the, the flesh is, is very real and spiritual warfare is real, and, and the more you pray for the leadership team, the more you pray for elders, deacons, for more elders and deacons, and the more you pray for us, 
in that process, the better it is. And, uh, and so we'd ask you to pray that this would always remain true for our church from today forward. So would you bow your head with me? Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for um, this passage. Lord, this isn't just a, a list of, of guys that we look at for arrogance reasons, that they're more holy than other people. In many ways, they're more in touch with their sin than other people. They're, they're walking humbly before God, desiring to, to live righteously before you. But, but Lord, I, I see this list as a need for the church, for shepherds to care, for more shepherds, so that more shepherding can go on in the church, that lives would be touched, that people would be welcomed into homes, and that we would have people who, who have proven character, proven conviction, proven competencies to just build up the body so that Christ would be made known right here and that we would have an impact, that we would be the church. Lord, that we wouldn't see the, a disconnect between this passage and what goes on in our world around us. That our response to all the craziness of the world is to be the church and to be the church the way God designed it. Lord, I pray for the existing leaders that we would walk humbly before you. We're not perfect, God. We fail in so many ways. But Lord, as we stand in your grace, may we walk as men of character. I pray for the next generation, the young men in this church that would be influenced by this, that you would raise among the young men that are here a next generation of leaders. And I pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of people today, <clears throat> that they would step up and take that, that, the next burden of leadership and shepherding and care. And Lord, would you just surround us by men of conviction. Thank you, God, for this importance of this passage. And even as we unfold it more next week, God, may it just solidify in our hearts the design for the church that you have. In Christ's name, amen.